1: From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, in life as well as show business, timing can be everything like this, a new Netflix documentary series called Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak then the director of Beasts of the Southern Wild partners with his sister to reimagine Peter Pan and answer a lifelong
2: question. What changes in us that uh, destroys a kid and turns it into an adult? You know, a lot of this film was about us sort of looking at uh, adulthood and and trying to save ourselves uh, from it by, by making this film.
1: And we'll visit the recording studio of the man behind the Daptone sound. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. There's a new Netflix documentary series that just came out that's eerily relevant to the spread of the coronavirus. It's called Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak, and it follows the battle against influenza and other viruses. Sherry Fink is a correspondent for the New York Times and an executive producer of the series. She's also a medical doctor. We discussed the making of the six-part series and how to prepare for the current outbreak. And I started by playing a clip from the series about the 1918 flu pandemic, which killed an estimated 50 million people. Here's Dr. Dennis Carroll. He's the former director of the Emerging Threats Unit for the U.S. Agency for International Development. And that flu profoundly impacted this Earth emerged at the very end of World War I. Soldiers returning home from battle helped spread the virus around the world. We ended up seeing a global event very rapidly, even at a time when population movements were a fraction of what they are today. That's an incredibly important point. When population movements were a fraction of what they are today, how is what happened more than 100 years ago relevant to what's happening today?
3: it's very instructive and in fact you know governments hospitals etc they have a lot of disaster scenarios that they plan for or they drill for and a pandemic like the 1918 flu is one of the realistic you know rare but potentially foreseeable and catastrophic things that are planned for and today the risks because we are more globally connected because the population of the earth is so much bigger there's more risk of people getting sick and dying. On the other coin, we see that there are steps that can be taken. And so that risk is if we do nothing. So there are measures. And of course, there are uh, many, many scientists now working to test uh, potential treatments to start working on vaccines, which, of course, will take many, many months, if not uh, a year or two, to actually be something that could be a product that we could use. But we have all of those tools now that maybe we didn't have as much a hundred years ago
1: so many of the people we meet in this series are incredibly inspiring they are doctors they are researchers they are people who are trying to make people well often at great risk to their own health but in terms of the information that the public can take away how they might change their behavior whether or not they should be afraid or just careful what were some of the things you wanted to impart to viewers about how they might look at the world? And not be panicked about it, but do things that are smart and reasonable.
3: I think the big takeaway, and you see this all over the world, is that when we panic, when we do things and we don't follow advice, for example, you see in the series people attacking Ebola workers in Congo. And then you see in Corvallis, Oregon, people who are vaccine hesitant and who aren't vaccinating their children, and kind of how that's led to a resurgence of these really preventable and also potentially deadly diseases like measles. So hopefully you watch the docuseries and you learn about viruses, you learn about emerging pathogens, have a hopeful takeaway. And then I would say in the moment, it is really important for all of us to be thinking now about, well, if the virus comes to our local areas, how do we get information? Um, Good sources are local public health departments. They're on social media now. They've got websites, Um, your radio, KPCC, for example. And so we may be seeing important messages coming out about what we can all do. But it's really, really important for all of us to be kind of getting good information, not being scared, but just thinking through what we can do to protect ourselves.
1: I want to play a clip from the second episode. This is a mom named Kaylin Wager. She lives in Corvallis, Oregon, and she is what we would call an anti-vaxxer.
3: For me, it's not about whether you vaccinate or you don't. It's us having the freedom of choice to choose what we think as a parent is the best thing for our child. Rumi, to calm us down. Roll this over your heart, okay? I'm very confident that no one else can teach and direct and guide my kids' hearts and minds and souls better than me.
4: Everything with this whole vaccine bill is someone who believes that they know what's better for you than I do and what you do. So it's removing our choice.
1: So why include her perspective? Because... It is not backed by science and it is dangerous to the general population for that argument to have a toehold.
3: So we uh, producers had a lot of talks about including, as you just said, you know, this perspective. And the reason why we included it is because I think a lot of people don't um, appreciate how widespread thoughts like hers are and how much of an impact it's having on disease. There have been resurgences, as I mentioned, of measles, for example, all over the world because of these types of attitudes and and behaviors. And so it's important to understand them and not um, just ignore them.
1: The coronavirus has not yet been declared a pandemic, but it could be soon. And we're hearing about global stock markets collapsing. The coronavirus has spread to Europe. There are movie productions that are stopping filming How susceptible are we all to this coronavirus? And do you think it could become a pandemic soon?
3: At this moment that we're speaking, there is not, as far as we know, community sustained transmission in the U.S. So that's a lot of gobbledygook words. But essentially, like today, when you're going to school, for example, you're at a very low risk. But Yes, this virus has showed its ability to transmit easily from person to person. We're seeing a 2 to 4% mortality in places like China, where there are many cases. That's serious. We're also in the middle of flu season, and our hospitals are already kind of full. So it is a risk, and... Um, And I think it is very foreseeable that it could come here. The CDC had a press conference saying we need to face that reality.
1: Sherry Fink is a correspondent at The New York Times and an executive producer of the documentary series Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. It's available on Netflix now. Sherry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Coming up on The Frame, the director of Beasts of the Southern Wild is back with an ambitious retelling of Peter Pan.
2: The L.A.S. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.
1: When Beasts of the Southern Wild premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2012, a fresh new voice in indie filmmaking burst into the spotlight. Ben Zeitlin co-wrote and directed the magical realism drama of a father and a daughter. It went on to earn four Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Now, eight years later, Zeitlin's new film is coming to theaters. Wendy is a radical reimagining of the Peter Pan story, largely shot on the Caribbean island of Montserrat, which was leveled by a volcano in 1995. As he did with Beast, Zeitlin cast untrained actors and put children at the center of the story.
0: Peter promised he would visit as soon as he could. So we waited and counted the days.
1: by and move faster and faster. Ben Zeitlin co-wrote Wendy with his sister Eliza. She also did the production design, and Ben co-wrote the film's score. I sat down with the two of them the day after Wendy premiered at Sundance, the place that changed their lives eight years ago.
2: We've been dreaming about making this movie our entire lives, basically, or telling the story in some kind of way. I'm sure we made puppet shows of it when Eliza was two years old and I was four so it was always a film we wanted to make, and we had some sense of it, and it always kind of was like the hardest film we could ever make. It was one that was like, we want to do this, but it's impossible. And I remember kind of in right in the wake of Beasts when we sort of realized that we were going to sort of have this incredible opportunity to kind of make whatever film we wanted to in the way that we wanted to, and um, we skipped over several other films that we thought we would make first. And we're, and I remember just saying like, I think this is our chance to make Wendy. They may never let us back in here.
1: Because of what Beast had given you in terms of how it was received, that you had an opening a, a opportunity to use that capital to make this film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I wanna ask you about growing up and about the games you played and the stories you told each other, because so much of Wendy feels like childhood stories kind of writ large
4: we had an alley next to our house in sunnyside queens where we would drag refrigerator boxes and wh- shopping carts and whatever debris we found on the streets of new york and turn them into pirate ships and forts and magical islands and
2: I mean, it was it was one game we had we consolidated all the game into a single game that was called the never ending game but the fundamental rule of it is if you turn 13 you were cast out um that, w- that was always part of our personal mythology that we lived inside of so
1: that you would never grow old or that if you grow grew old, grew you, old. that was it
2: yeah, you yeah out of the club. you're done
1: was this something you knew kind of <laughs> consciously or subconsciously kind of, was it had you like read jamberry or is it just something like you were always focused on when you were no longer a child
4: i had a Terrible, terrible fear of growing up. That I'm not sure where it came from. I still because do. our parents <laughs> yeah. are are not an example of people who grew up and lost their joy and turned into olds. So I don't know where this <laughs> this fear came from.
2: I think we we looked at grownups and sort of, you know, not our parents, but like you know, perhaps our teachers, and uh, just sort of wondered, you know, what happened. You know, it was like what, where did the dreams go? Where did their joy go? Why are they destroying? the planet and killing each other, like what changes in us that uh, destroys uh, a kid and turns it into an adult. You know, a lot of this film was about us sort of looking at uh, adulthood and and trying to save ourselves uh, from it by by making this film. Tell
0: us a story, woman.
2: I can't, I have to work, dudes.
0: Come on, you never tell us stories anymore.
4: Okay, but just one. Yeah! Yeah! (laughs) Once upon a time, there was a little girl and two twin boys. Boring. That's
3: Next. Tell us a real one from before we were born.
2: No.
0: Wendy, mom was a badass. She hitched all the way to California when she was only one year older than me. And she stole a few cars while she was at it.
4: I said hush. The last character that we cast for the film was the mother, Mrs. Darling, and we were searching for this role yeah. long after all of the other roles had already been filled. And the way that she was originally written, she was sort of this dreamer who had never actually gotten out to live the life that she wanted. And that affected the children, why they run away. All, all, everything about the story was affected by how they were raised and how they see their mother. And then we cast Shay Walker, who was a complete wild woman. And that was the <laughs> last piece, the last character that went into the film. And suddenly we had to sit down and say, this changes everything about the story if this is the woman that raised them. This is not about, you know, somebody that didn't go out and live life to the fullest. It has to be somebody who's wild and fierce and gave up a lot of their dreams in order to have this family. And that becomes what Wendy's afraid of in some ways.
1: In introducing the film yesterday first screening, you said the history or the making of this movie is <laughs> untellable or... <laughs> Words to that effect, what is the tellable version of why it was so difficult to get this film made or or to to find
2: it through filming an editorial? Um, you know, I think that we both set out to make this film that we'd always dreamed of, but we even more so set out to go on the most extraordinary adventure of our lives. And so, you know, between sort of a, ca- a broadcast of non-professional child actors who were a wild group of kids, you know, all every one of those kids is exactly the kid that Peter would come and find to take away to Neverland because they're out of control like that. So those elements, um, you know, and then certainly the location shooting on remote islands we shot um in a in a, in the volcanic exclusion zone of an island called Montserrat, which has an active volcano. Um, but that was just the tip of the iceberg, you know, dealing with the ocean. We sank a boat, you know. I mean, every single one of these sets and places we went to was its own extraordinary conquest really to uh to be able to shoot a film in a place that you just shouldn't be able to shoot a film um but that wasn't like the hardships those hardships were by design in a lot of ways we wanted the film to have this spontaneity that would come from um things that you could not control you know and you shot
1: on 16 millimeter film Mm -hmm. which artistically is a choice and then practically is another choice because you have a limited magazine and you're shooting with kids and you're shooting on water where everything and anything can go wrong. So at what point does the aesthetic start to interrupt the
2: practicality of actually shooting the film? I mean, for me, actually, probably the most difficult thing was just actually getting the film off the island to the lab, coming back. That would take like a week every time.
1: To see your dailies, to see if you'd gotten yeah, the shot.
2: exactly. So that's that, that certainly adds a a layer of risk but you know shooting in sandstorm shooting on water you know uh and and especially shooting so remotely that you can't bring a lot of equipment to control your light and your look and one of the amazing things about 16 is that you can kind of point and shoot you know even if you can only get three people out to your set you can still get images that look beautiful
1: we're talking with ben and eliza zeitlin about their film wendy why is the movie
2: called wendy um you know our our interest in the story wasn't sort of the normal kind of like escapist thing where you escape from the world, have this really fun adventure, and then go back. We wanted to look at the character who who experiences the Neverland, but then has to leave, and then how they navigate that and survive that, and and that that's really Wendy's story. Um, and beyond that, you know, um, maybe you can talk to just like wanting to reinvent that character. We wanted to
4: free her from the bonds of just staying at home and darning socks and making pockets. And she's always seen as the one on the outside looking in. Um, I didn't want it to be come about the fact that she was a girl. I wanted that to just be irrelevant. Of course, girls can be strong and brave and in the midst of the adventure and driving their own story. And we also wanted to take a more complicated look at motherhood I think motherhood in the original story is all about being a homemaker and trying to keep the children from doing dangerous things. And we wanted motherhood to really be something much bigger that's inside of Wendy that she's learning, she's discovering in herself throughout the story and a a force that she uses as a weapon against evil.
1: No, it's the life force in the movie, isn't it? Motherhood is. (laughs)
2: Tell her that I'm being wild as hell and that when I come back, I'm going to show her how. Tell her I miss her
1: and I love her. Now fly home. Ben, when you see young kids on an island alone, you can't help but think of something like Lord of the Flies. And you start to think about safety and about children being in danger. And yet these kids are safe because... They are smart and they're capable. How important was that to how we're supposed to see these kids, not as kids who are overwhelmed, but kids who are on an adventure, that this is a story that they're creating almost in real time?
2: One of the central challenges of the film was always to, like, make it seem like it was incredibly dangerous while obviously always being totally safe um, for the kids. But, you know, we, we wanted to give them, um, you know, we The kids really became incredibly brave through doing the film, which was one of the most exciting things about it like and then when we first met devin, she Devin well, who plays devin wendy. who plays wendy? um you know she was nervous to get up in a tree she didn't want to get bit by ants by the end of the film. she was jumping backwards off of twenty feet platforms into the water and just fearless you know and and we wanted to we wanted to sort of show what strength kids get from being set free.
1: How much is folklore part of your own? histories and about myths and storytelling through folk tales and how does that influence the way you look at storytelling now
2: you know, our parents run a nonprofit in, in New York City and do a lot of like preserving culture. And so, our whole childhood was just like populated by eccentrics from all different cultures. We um, we went to birthday parties with uh, all of the cast of the Coney Island Freak Show, and then we would go um, hang out with gospel singers. We'd go to a Chinese opera, and so it was like all these sort of eccentrics um, and story, and also myths and stories and are things that my parents have always studied and told back to us, and all those things. Certainly, you know, I can see them all over our work, you know, now that now that I have perspective on it. Eliza?
3: Uh,
4: I think a big part of the reason for wanting to retell the story of Peter Pan rather than starting with a completely new story is because stories that are embedded in the folklore of our culture have a power that everybody knows and it's part of everybody's childhood. And to be able to twist that story into something else, I think has a very deep effect on people more than just a new story that comes out of nowhere
1: ben and eliza thanks so much for coming on the show thanks my pleasure wendy is in theaters on february 28th coming up on the frame daptone records is based in brooklyn but a lot of its sound comes out of a studio in riverside california
2: If
1: you've listened to the music of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, Charles Bradley, or the band Antibalas, you probably know about Daptone Records. The Brooklyn-based indie label was co-founded by Gabriel Roth. He's a musician, producer, and engineer who grew up in the Inland Empire and has moved back to Riverside. The Frame contributor Beto Arcos visited his recording studio and has this profile of the man behind the Daptone sound.
5: It's a Wednesday afternoon at the Penrose Studios, located on the second floor of a building in downtown Riverside. Producer Gabriel Roth is at the helm, playing organ, as the San Diego-based group The Sacred Souls rehearses a song they're about to record today. Most of the Dapton Records operations is in Brooklyn, but about a decade ago, Roth moved here to set up shop, and in the past year, he noticed a re-emerging music scene in Southern California.
0: I started to, to meet more and more musicians out here and kind of discover this kind of local scene, this kind of resurgence of this... Well, it's hard to say resurgence because the scene has always been here in California, this kind of soulies scene, you know, which is, you know, mostly, mostly Chicano scene, but just a lot, of, a lot of people out here that have always been into oldies and old soul records.
5: Roth was born in the San Bernardino area and grew up in Riverside.
0: And when I was 17, I moved to New York, and I was there for most of my adult life.
5: In 2001, Roth and saxophonist Neil Sugarman launched Daptone Records and ushered in a revival of soul music. Since then, the label has released more than 50 albums and 130 45s of soul, R&B, funk, gospel, rock, Afrobeat, and Latin music. One of Dapton's biggest artists is soul singer Sharon Jones. Roth produced and wrote most of the songs for her group, The Dapkings. Kings. He recorded hundreds of songs with Jones, including Fish in the Dish, from the album Natural. fish
0: Fish in the Dish is a song I wrote for Sharon. And she just dug her teeth into it, man. it's beautiful just to hearing the joy when she sings that song
5: but Jones died about three years ago from pancreatic cancer.
0: playing behind Sharon was probably the um you know a thrill in my life, and it was probably in a, in a lot of ways you know always be the high point of my musical career you know with her passing there's a there's definitely a little bit disorienting trying to find my find my footing you know because I mean, it's not as much as like, oh, I got to try to figure out how to make money or hustle or find another singer or some like that. It not, has nothing to do with that. It's more about just kind of taking a real step back and being like, well, what do I really have to contribute at this point? You know what I mean? I'm not trying to do what I did again.
5: Another artist whose career was launched by Dapton Records was soul singer Charles Bradley. Sadly, he died about
0: a year after Sharon Jones. Charles Bradley has a lot of great songs, man. In You, I Found a Love, that's a Hello, great man. one, man. Um, the world was obviously a big one. The telephone song was one of my favorites.
5: to hear your voice You way across the ocean Bradley and Jones put the Brooklyn-based label on the map. But somewhere along the way, Roth started
0: to feel a tug.: In 2010, I believe, um, my wife and I, you know, we had, we had our daughter Penelope and stuff, and we wanted to live in Delawareware life so we moved back out here, moved back to Riverside.
5: Rod found an old building downtown Riverside and rented part of the second floor. There are no computers in the studio. All the music is recorded on analog tape.
4: It's a process that takes a little bit longer. It's a little bit more, more, more time-consuming. Working with tape, working with all the musicians at the same
5: time. Twenty-nine-year-old Simon Guzman has been working as an engineer with Daptone Records for the past seven years.
4: At the end of the day, when the record comes out, it just it, it sounds that's the sound. It's like it sounds like was recorded by a bunch of people in the same room, and they, we're all throwing ideas. So it's that, that's, if, if that tone has a sound, that's the sound.
5: Looking back at the success of his work with all these artists, Roth, now 45, says he's in a different phase of his life and career. He has the resources
0: to contribute to the R&B scene in Southern California. I'm in a great position to help these younger artists who actually have their own scene that isn't my scene. It's not something I create. It's not something that I take credit for. It's not something I, you know, lay claim to or put my flag in necessarily. But it's something that I feel like, you know, I kind of was where they were. 20-something years ago, you know, me and my friends in kind of a scene and getting, oh, you sing backgrounds on my record and I'll play bass on your record and, you know, these kind of bands that are working together and and starting to appreciate similar music.
5: Adriana Flores is a singer in two East L.A. groups, The Alton's and The Sincere's. Both groups have been recording at the Dapton Studios in Riverside.
2: First of all, it's a dream, like if anyone ever asked me. What label or anything I would want to do with it would be Daptone, anything associated, because I'm a huge fan of all their acts.
5: And next spring, the music of both R&B groups will be released on a new Daptone imprint called Penrose. For The Frame, I'm Beto Arcos. And that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn.
1: Remember, you will never miss an episode of The Frame if you subscribe to our podcast You can get our daily show and our hour-long weekend show from your favorite podcast source. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round.
0: This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell?
1: My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.